if you see hate or misinformation, first of all, ignore it. Don't react. That's what they want you to do because the, the you know the, the fund, fundamentally the, the, the platforms algorithms respond to engagement. Hi, my name is Vinay Nair, and welcome to Reclaim Social, a podcast powered by Lightful. Reclaim Social started as a campaign in 2018 with an idea where we thought, what if we could make social media more positive? Since then, we've reached tens of millions of people, and this is just the beginning. On the Reclaim Social podcast, we talk to inspiring people who make the social media world more positive, one post at a time. So let's go. It's time to Reclaim Social. Hello, Imran. It's really great to have you on the Reclaim Social podcast. I've been following you on social media for a little bit now, and it's great to actually talk to you this time. It's lovely to be here. I'd love to know more about yourself and your work. And could you present yourself in a minute? Sure. My name is Imran Ahmed. I'm chief executive of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Um, we've been working for around two and a half years uh, as a private organization and nine, ten months or so as a public organization, trying to disrupt the way in which hate and misinformation is spread in digital spaces and the way in which it's been used by political actors to uh, try and push forward what were once fringe beliefs and make them mainstream, which includes identity-based hate, but also anti-scientific ideas like climate change denial, and as we've seen most recently, vaccine denial. That's very interesting, and I'm already thinking of many things I want to ask. So how did you start as an idea with the Centre for Countering Digital Hate? Well, um, gosh, I mean, I, I guess it started with my work. I, I, my, my earlier career was in uh, Parliament, uh, working with politicians and seeing things happen, like, uh, for example, the referendum on the European Union, in which uh, a large amount of misinformation was being spread. Um, some of it about economics, some of it identity-based hate. Um, also, the changing uh, social mores, the sort of the attitudes and behaviours and values of the political parties, they were starting to become more brittle. There was a lot more what we call negative partisanship, so hating the other side more so than you even love your own side. Um, and we saw the rise of Trump happening at the same time as Modi, um, sort of his uh, anti-Muslim rhetoric in India, uh, Duterte in the Philippines, Bolsonaro in Brazil, the IFD uh, in Germany. And it became clear that there was something happening that was beyond left or right, beyond any in- individual geography, that was changing the nature of how our politics was done in a way that, that was promoting counter-enlightenment beliefs. So people that really were trying to roll back hundreds of years of progress on uh, the centrality of science of tolerance to our to, to our to our societies um, and so we um, we did our best to try and uh, put uh, try and understand that first and then to push back on it it feels like as you've said over the last few years there are many changes that contribute to making the conversation even more important about online hate and I was also wondering how has COVID-19 and 
everything happening really in 2020 affected your work and your framing? Well, I mean, funnily enough, COVID... Um... So one of the things that we do is we study the spaces in which hate is proselytized to to um, members of the public. And, you know, in my industry, there's there's people that will sort of uh, one of our internal jokes is if someone if, if you ask someone who doesn't know um, or is trying to sort of uh, to dupe people into believe into trying to explain where hate is spread, they'll talk about the dark web. Um, and that'll make people chuckle because, of course, that's not where you spread to to you know members of the public uh, identity based hate. Um, you do it on the most open platforms available. The one that has the ones that have the most people is Facebook. It's uh, it's Twitter. It's um, the biggest, the most widely used platforms. And so we uh, are constantly tracking and studying what hate actors are up to in those spaces. And I was in the United States for all of February. I was actually traveling across the entire country. And I suspect I had COVID because I, I, I got to Washington and um, Washington State. Uh, I was going to visit with um, some civil rights activists in Portland and then um, to go and do a bit of study in Spokane, which is where the base, an ultra-nationalist um, terrorist group, uh, is based. Um, and uh, we, uh, I got terribly ill. Um, I contacted my staff and they were like, well, you know, funny thing is, we're seeing a lot about this on the forums at the moment, this is coronavirus. And um, I thought, oh, really? Ah, okay, well, why don't we just dig into that for a few days? And we did. And by the time I'd left the United States three weeks later, we'd completely shifted all staff to looking at coronavirus because it became clear that even though, you know, the rest of the, the certainly the political class, um, the, the our sector, the counter-hate sector had been slow to pick up on this, the... The people that we were countering had not been slow. Um, they had realised that coronavirus presented a critical opportunity for them to preach their doctrine, and their doctrine is that experts can't be trusted, that um, that you you can't listen to politicians, that they are the true voice of the people, and that it's a, a, a fundamentally conspiracist worldview as well. That there are powerful forces that are that are behind everything that's happening, and. Uh, also read about your recent report on the anti-vax industry. So it's really interesting and so many interesting findings on how social media really contributed to the rise of the anti-vaxxer and information. So is this, as you've said, about making the most of the public networks and go exactly where people are? Right. And, and that's all that, you know, that is the power of social media for good and for bad. That the truth is that we, we do... We, we are we are predisposed to believe and listen to and want to believe people that we're close to that we love that we care about and social media um, is incredibly powerful for that reason but of course that power can be used in the wrong way and when people are producing highly shareable you know very cleverly designed propaganda which seeks to seeks to fill gaps in people's uh, feelings and knowledge that they have about a crisis like coronavirus that does that for all of us, even the greatest scientists in the world, couldn't possibly know everything there is to know about 
uh, a, a novel pathogen, a new, a completely new disease. Um, and so they seek to fill that gap and recommendation from friends and family, the same dynamics that help us so much in our day-to-day life and that social media brings benefit to us. Those same dynamics are being used for, you know, really nefarious purposes. And also I was reading it. It was also interesting, the fact that Instagram accounts, based on your report, they contain half of the anti-vax campaigners uh, that saw follower growth like rapidly increasing. And do you think there's a difference from one platform to another based on the algorithm? Or is it just what's popular right now and they make the most of it? Right. I mean, I think it's 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 it's, it's not it's it's a complex thing. So uh, I, I was talking about this yesterday with someone from uh, fr- from the UK public health environment. Um, and they were saying, do you think that Facebook's lack of growth is because they've contained it? Well, I said, well, no, it could just be saturation. It could just be that it's reached the saturation level. And so they're looking for new markets. Um, And where's their new growth market? Well, they looked at Instagram and they thought, gosh, you know what? That's something that we haven't actually used sufficiently right now. It's a no brainer because there are people there who are interested in our sorts of issues. And so let's let's start targeting that. So we can't really tell what's in the mind of of, of, um, as well. What is not a coordinated, but a very disparate um, array of actors who are involved in pushing coronavirus misinformation and vaccine misinformation. So they will gravitate to where the market is, where there's most people that are uninfected with their propaganda and where there are where the, the environment benefits them and, and where their tactics work. Um, so it is it's it's very much like studying a, a sort of a, a conventional market, um, trying to understand, well, what are the growth dynamics in this market? How are they exploiting particular opportunities to target people? I think what I also find interesting when I'm reading more about this is that there's clearly the psychology on how to go viral and how to use, as you've said, social media and the algorithms and how everything works to actually spread the hate and make it in a very fast way that you don't really control it. Yeah, I mean, I think what makes CCDH quite interesting as an organisation is that we are, so our public presentation is, of course, we, we talk about what we found, but underlying it is a really, we've got a really great board, um, and we have really great scientific advisors, um, and all of us are, multi, uh, in some respect, multidisciplinary. So, I mean, I went to med school, um, you know, we have uh, people who are experts in health communications, in science, in various different aspects of um, different fields to the typical counter-hate field. And we're interested in the, the individual psychology, the social psychology, the neurology that underpins the malignant phenomena that we're looking at. So why is it that identity, why is it that coronavirus, for example, is correlated with identity-based hate? So why is it driving a, a, a surge in right-wing authoritarianism and conspiracism? Um, and that there is, you know, there's research to look at that. So, um, well, on the social psychology side, Michael Bang-Peterson, who writes about the correlation between right-wing authoritarianism and what's called the disgust sensitivity, which is an evolutionary psychological trait, one of our moral foundations. But also those two aspects of our of our psyche are, are co-located in the insular cortex of the brain. So, And that's sort of the work of uh, Robert Sapolsky, uh, who wrote a very interesting book called Behave, and he and I have talked about this. So, I mean, this is really, you know, underpinning it is a deep understanding of, well, what, this is not, 
you know, people aren't stupid for believing conspiracy theories. That, that, that these are very skilled propagandists using the most sophisticated persuasion platforms in the history of mankind in a sophisticated and new way. And it, it, it's, of course, lots and lots of people are being manipulated, are being lied to, are being fed information in a really sophisticated way. And our responses have to be similarly sophisticated. That's a really good point. And the case is, as there are more instances of rising racism and hate every single day on social media and digital spaces in general, so what's the best way to reduce the visibility of hate on a personal and obviously at the level where the tech platforms are involved? So I guess there's there's three things that I, I talk about. The first is that for the individual, while we're waiting for the social media companies and regulators to get off their jacksies, um, it's, you know, that we have an individual ability to curate our social media experience. And that's why we have Don't Feed the Trolls was, I think we launched with that in September 2019, um, where we said that if, if you see people spreading uh, hate, uh, and we've adapted that since to Don't Spread the Virus, which is a, um, which is, uh, we, we built with the government to specifically deal with coronavirus misinformation. And what it says is that if you see hate or misinformation, first of all, ignore it. Don't react. That's what they want you to do because the, the you know, the, the fund, fundamentally the, the, the platform's algorithms respond to engagement. Uh, that's all they care about. They don't care about fact or fiction. They, it's not they they are ideological, these algorithms. They're mathematical. They say, what is the most engaging content? What is getting the most people, what's keeping the most people on our platform and therefore making us money because that's how they make money. They make money almost entirely. 98% of Facebook's revenues, for example, are from advertising. So that means they need you on the platform sitting and watching their site. And how do they do that? Well, they do that by providing you with the most engaging content. If you touch misinformation or hate, you prove it's engaging. So we say, first of all, ignore it. Second of all, block it, because it's designed to be engaging. The platform wants you to engage, so it will serve you more and more material that is really, really, that is really designed to get you emotionally engaged so that you react and stay on the platform. And so the best thing you can do, especially with hate, is block it and then go and find something. Uh, if it's misinformation, go and find some correct information from the WHO, from the CDC, from the NHS and go and retweet that because that way we can balance out the misinformation out there with good information. And all too often we hobble um, good information because we don't, I mean, you know, who would, who on earth would go and retweet an NHS tweet? It's kind of a weird thing to do, isn't it? You could just think, well, that's the NHS. Of course they've got loads of followers. They're the NHS, but they don't. That's the reality. Their, their, their tweets don't do very well. Their videos don't get that many views compared to the bad, the, the, the sort of malignant actors. So, um, there's, that's the individual level. There's the um, platform level, and it's really simple. The only thing that works is deplatforming. And you can lie as much as you want about the algorithm being changed. They will never change the algorithm in the way that it has to be changed. If the algorithm is there to make them money, and they're commercial companies, and that's what it's there to do, then their algorithm will always prioritize the most engaging content. It has to. It's just the fundamental logic of the business. In fact, they'd be failing as, as executives if they didn't do that. 
So their fundamental duty is to keep people on the platform. To keep people on the platform, you've got to provide engaging content. If you and engaging content, it's really simple. It's what gets you emotionally excited. And so, you know, Facebook's own own internal assessments of their algorithm, which came out in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago, said our algorithm fundamentally relies upon and feeds divisiveness. It's about creating division and division keeps you engaged because you like fighting sides. That's the way the human brain works, in and out groups. And they will keep doing that. They'll make anything into an in and out group for us. So this, this, the brittleness that we see in our society more generally, that is being driven, we know, by these social media spaces. We, that, we, we, we kind of don't believe that they will ever change their algorithms. So we've just said to them, all right, fine. Well, then why are you platforming Nazis, liars, people who are trying to get people to take, um, take remedies or false cures that will actually hurt them? And I think that that's been particularly effective because what we've done is turn the focus on them and said, well, why are you tolerating this? Do you, do you think it's acceptable for you to make money out of this? And actually, what's driven change has been that sort of focus on their responsibility, their moral responsibility, not making this a technological question, but making it a moral question. Why are you profiting from hate? Why are you profiting from misinformation? How do you justify that to yourself and to society as a whole? And that's been a real sea change. Uh, and then finally, we want government to start to regulate uh, slightly more effectively. You know, the online harms bill that we're uh, advocating on, uh, which has a statutory duty of care in it. We've been talking to really interesting folks about that. And I think the government is now in a place where it's willing to move. And I think it's what you said also really about the moral responsibility. And there are more cases, especially this year, that we see how they're trying to keep social media companies accountable. And what you also mentioned about how do they take so long for racist, abusive and hateful content to just stay in the platform. And then they only decide to moderate some sort of it once there's like a really big conversation. And of course, the damage has already been done. Yeah, and, and the really big conversation makes people go to their platform. If you look at it cynically through the lens of, if you look at it from this lens, like, the, so yeah, every corporation, the executives within there have a legal duty to maximize shareholder value. And that's your legal duty as an exec. And I, and I used to work for Merrill Lynch. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I had a corporate career before I, I went into politics um, when I was in my, late, uh, in my early, very early 20s. Um, my job was fundamentally to maximize shareholder value. And if I failed to do so, I'd be removed from my job. That is, on the directors of the company, there is a legal duty to maximize shareholder value. And so that fiduciary duty, they, they can only fulfill in one way, which is to maximize the amount of time people spend on their platform consuming the advertising, which is their sole source of revenue. And in order to do so, they, they will, if, if, if there's hate on their platform, They'll allow two days of people staring at Twitter, making a huge hullabaloo about it, and then they'll take action at a very late stage and have everyone go, this is wonderful, let's all flow back into Twitter, it's now a safe space. But the reality is that anyone that believes that Twitter was doing that out of any kind of moral responsibility that they felt is bananas, because the truth is that they made a pretty penny out of that entire experience. They had everyone talking about their platform again and saying how important it was. 
and what's more important is that we are we're, we we find solutions that are broader that are more permanent and that induce a fundamental shift in the way that they operate for a longer period and I think what you've said as a key word really to the whole conversation on how things work with social media platforms is around revenue. And as you've mentioned on your report on the anti-vax movement, the movement right now could be worth $1 billion in annual revenue for social media giants, which is very impressive to consider. Sure. So there are campaigns like Stop Hate for Profit that are really gaining a momentum, especially the last month. And it's about keeping the tech companies accountable and seeing the advertising being pulled out in order to try to get their attention. So how do you think that can really affect some sort of change? Well, I mean, look, I think there's, there's, two, there's two ways that we drive change. So there's two, there's two components to the change. First of all, it's to understand that the, the responsibility is on the social media companies. Um, and when we do that, we make it a moral question, not a technological question. So... Um, the second part of it is what Stop Funding Fake News, which is one of our campaigns, and what um, the Stop Hate for Profit campaign, um, which was set up by um, the NAACP, ADL, Colour of Change, Common Sense Media, Free Press in the United States, and which uh, CCDH joined yesterday uh, publicly um, with an advert in the Los Angeles Times and one in the Guardian tomorrow, I think. Um, that Those two campaigns are all about saying, hey, advertisers, we know that we're not the customers of Facebook, us as people. Like, we're their products. They, they, they take our data, they package us, they sell them to you, the advertisers. So you have the power to change their behavior because you're their real customers. And why don't you send them a message and reduce your spend? Because at the moment, you're advertising on a platform that is full of absolutely horrifying content. Um, we have three active investigations at the moment at CCDH. One of them is, a, is another coronavirus one. Another one is a vaccine one. The other one is into... Um, far-right, neo-Nazi, terrorist hate openly being monetized on platforms, <laughs> on Facebook. And I mean, if, if I showed you the content that I, 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 and I saw the first, first cut of that data last night, it's just horrifying. These are the platforms that advertisers are putting their brands on. And they need to understand that that's what's happening, A, that, they're f that, that Facebook is failing the moral question. So let's now make it an economic question. Let's produce the economic incentive for them to change. And that economic incentive can be done by advertisers or it can be done by governments, but advertisers have a responsibility too. So that I think has been a sea change that we've realized now that one of the ways to get Facebook and the other platforms to change is to go after the advertisers because they're their real customers. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm really hoping that this is the starting point for the next steps, really, to explore different ways on how we can really get them to pay attention because this is definitely affecting their revenue and there is a bigger conversation growing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I think, I think that... So people have talked about tipping points and... Tipping points can happen for a lot of reasons. They can happen because of macro environmental factors. They can happen because of, you know, a, a sort of a, 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 a tactical victory. But I think what this is, is that this is a tipping point driven by 
a strategic insight, which is that there's no point going after them through the press or through anything else. Just go to their advertisers, go to the advertisers. And that, that like we now have a lever that's, you know, in, in, in the jargon, we need levers to pull so we can actually induce change. Well, we now have a lever that we can pull. So when we see something really egregious, you know, it's not just saying this is disgusting. How dare you put it there? It's saying this is disgusting advertisers. Are you sure you want your content next to this? And that is a powerful moment. Yeah, definitely agree. And thinking of the future, of course, it's not like we can really predict everything, but just on having our own guesses on how things are going. How do you think we could see social media in a couple of years' time? Can we be any optimistic or are things really grim? Well, I don't think it will exist in the way that it does today, is the honest truth. Um, I think 5G changes everything. Having you know near zero latency, um, being able to stream virtual reality uh, over near zero latency uh, worldwide, um, the increase in bandwidth, the increase in total uh, data capacity is is just it's growing at such a fast rate that um, I imagine that being able to write 280 characters might seem a bit arcane by then. <laughs> um, and, um, I think that this is a fast moving market. And that's the funny thing about these companies is that I think the problem is that they, that all of these companies that we're talking about, Twitter, Facebook, Google, etc., they are disruptors. They are companies that came along and disrupted markets. Um, and they know that they will one day be disrupted, whether it's by other players or it's by the technology advancing. And so in one respect, I always think of them as premiership footballers. They're sort of, they're, you know, they're there, they, they're at the top of their game, but they know it's only a couple of years. So they're going to grab every single pound they can. It is just a cash grab because they know they'll be disrupted in time. And, well, they feel that anyway, but at the same time, these are some of the world's biggest companies that have now created barriers to entry to their markets that are almost insuperable. And that's what the decision, that's what the discussions that were being had in Congress um, this uh, earlier this week were all about, their monopoly position. So... I think that we'll still see some of the same companies. We'll still see some of the same people. I think we'll see new entrants who take advantage of the technological shifts that are happening and opportunities that are being created. I think we'll see some of these companies die. Um, I think Twitter in particular is the most vulnerable, which is perhaps why it's the most resistant to change, because it is just grabbing for the cash as fast as it can right now. Um, and I... I would like to think that when it comes to that moral case, that we will have come closer to have made that moral case such that a more curated experience on social media is possible and one in which some of the most egregious malignant phenomena are dealt with so that we can use it for what it is really great at, which is connecting. It connects us in terms of knowledge. It connects our feelings. It allows us... I mean, it gives us a chance to to love, to live, to learn all around the world from each other. And that's its potential. It definitely And So do you think it's more about educating ourselves at, at least as long as social media companies are in our lives? And if we choose to use social media still, is it more about understanding how hate and misinformation is working? So how can we help more people understand this and improve everyone's 
social media experience as much as possible. Sure, and that's the work that you're doing. And look, there's an ecosystem of responses that's needed to a major technological shift that leads to a lot of malignant phenomena emerging. So education plays a part, disruption plays a part, um, helping helping pro-social forces to more more adequately na- navigate social media spaces. Because, you know, when I speak to my, my colleagues in... Um, the climate change movement, in um, the arts, in other spaces, and we provide uh, help and assistance and consulting, um, well, free consulting work to them to uh, help them to be better at what they do in digital spaces. You know, it is a range of responses that's required. Um, we are t- a tiny part of it, and I get that. Like, um, that we, we're good at something, and we just do that. Um, but there are other folks who do who have responses. But in the end, it will take us. It's it's a whole of society response that's needed, and education is a big part. It's always a big part of any response uh, to a big problem like this. I definitely agree, and especially being a social media manager for many years now, it's sometimes a little bit awkward trying to explain how you see the value of social media, as you said about connecting and building a community. And then you hear all the news and you also understand on your own on how grim it can be and how we understand that tech companies are all about the revenue. So I think it's more about finding a balance if you still believe that you want to be part of it. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I have mildly utopian beliefs. I believe that these technologies will eventually, you know, improve and enhance the quality of life for all of humankind. But that can only happen if we if it's not a, a system that's abused right now if you're a woman if you're a minority if you're lgbt social media isn't a nice space to go into it's basically it's, it's a counter enlightenment environment it's a space in which white straight men nothing wrong with being a white straight man some of my closest friends are white straight men but you know that white straight men are the least likely to receive abuse and so therefore they're least likely to be chased off these platforms. Well, that means that we're actually pushing out of public life people who we've spent hundreds of years now trying to encourage into public life. What an absolute waste of such a what such a potentially wonderful new platform. Yeah, I definitely agree. And there's a lot of conversation in this for sure. I'm really hoping that we're kind of gradually going towards the right direction. And how would you like to see CCDH in the next years? What would you like to focus more on? Gosh, when we're so young, I don't know. It just we 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 have we've I guess we've uh, we're growing, which is true anyway. We're, we're growing as an organisation. Um, I'm in Washington DC at the moment because we're. Uh, scoping out setting up an advocacy office to try and influence the debate here um we uh we we know that we need to do the same in brussels um we want to keep saying what we see um without fear or favor we want to keep holding people to account if the day comes when when others are able to have taken our strategic insights and we have no new ones then um i would like to think that ccdh you know, won't need to exist, and I can finally retire to Antigua with my cat and <laughs> happily uh, ever after. Yeah, and live happily ever after. That's my plan. I'd like to dream. Plan. A little bit utopic, but we can still dream, right? <laughs> yeah. And 
now we're almost done with the interview. So every time we're having a new uh, uh, chat, we're finishing with a rapid fire finish. So it's just four questions. There are nothing like the previous ones and just you having to answer as fast as possible. So we get going. Sure. Perfect. So first question, what would you do if you weren't doing your current job? Uh, I'd find something. I'd find something else that I wanted to fix and I'd go and fix it. Perfect. I know what I'm like. Yeah. What advice would you give your younger self? Oh, know your limits and um, at the same time, don't respect them. <laughs> Uh, what's your all-time favorite book oh gosh i don't think i have one i mean the honest truth is that i've got incredibly um pedestrian tastes in fiction and uh in non-fiction i read at a phenomenal ravenous rate um so uh i i really wouldn't wish to tell you what my favorite books were growing up because they're incredibly embarrassingly uh i don't think i've read much fiction sorry <laughs> reading the fifth on that i'm pleading the fifth it would expose too much about me. Maybe the next interview. We'll focus more on that. <laughs> uh, last yeah. question. Who should we invite on our podcast? Anyone you feel that they would make a great match? Oh, gosh. Uh, there's so many people I could think of. But um, I think Nick Martley from Digital Action is one of the most interesting thinkers, certainly when it comes to the balance of rights and duties and when it comes to our ability to interact in digital spaces. I think he's really fascinating. He's kind of not the yin my yang, but he's he's he provides a really interesting, challenging perspective to me. Great. I need to follow up then on that. And that was it. Thanks so much for joining. It was a very interesting conversation and I feel that we could talk way longer on all the cases on social media and all the grim and a little bit optimistic uh, things that are happening right now. And thanks so much with your very busy schedule for making it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to listen to more inspiring guests. The Reclaim Social Podcast is produced by Lightful, a technology company for social good. We work with amazing charities and nonprofit organizations and believe that those doing the greatest good deserve the best technology. If you want to find out more, visit www.lightful.com or follow us across social media. Thanks for listening.